You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's final lesson of the preaching module, How To, poor delivery can take so much away from a good sermon. Philip Edwards will share what he has learned over the years. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, see our future modules and also the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome. Uh, everyone this evening to uh, not only the last lesson in this uh, module on preaching but the last lesson of this year. So um, if you've enjoyed the teaching through the year well praise God for that and uh, we hope to continue next year starting again in September uh, on a, a third year of Arise Ministry. Let's pray it before we uh, open up our session this week. Father we just thank you again Uh, we always come to you and first give you thanks because you're so good and gracious and kind and loving and preserving. Father, we just commit ourselves to you now. We ask you to uh, open up our minds, help us to understand, to clearly appreciate uh, what we're looking at and to minister to our hearts as we gather together. To come around your word is always a good and a positive thing and we joy to do it. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've, I've called this evening's first lesson, How To. So it, it's the how to's, or it might be the how not to's. Uh, just, to, just to, so when we do preach, we don't do things that would distract the, the audience or uh, make the message more difficult to hear or understand. We need to do everything so we assist what it is God and the Holy Spirit are seeking to do through us. We want to be dynamic in our preaching. That doesn't necessarily mean we throw our arms about and we run around the room and we shout all the time. We want to be dynamic in the sense that uh, power is released in what we say. It could be in a whisper. It could be, it could be shouting if it was necessary, uh, but we need to be dynamic. I can imagine that Jesus was dynamic all of the time and he would use all of the skills and the abilities that he could as a human being to preach and to communicate. We know from scripture that it said always good things about him. Remember on one occasion the Pharisees they went to arrest Jesus and of course when they got there there he was preaching. Listen what they say about him in John 7 45 and 46. Finally, it says, the temple guards went back to the chief uh, priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him here? Why didn't you arrest him and bring him as you said? They said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards declared, sent there to arrest him, to take him. They were just spellbound by his words. They couldn't, couldn't do anything but just go back and say, we can't. He's... It wasn't because they were afraid of the crowds. It was just wonderful. His speaking was so wonderful. Mark 1 and 22, it says, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. 
So different. It goes on to say there, not like the teachers of the law, you know, always wagging the finger, telling you what you can and can't do. He just spoke with such authority and it captivated their minds as they were just transfixed. Another interesting one, in Luke 24 and 22, we read the account of where he went back to his hometown, Nazareth, um, and he preached there in the synagogue. And of course, we all know they came excitedly to hear their boy, the boy who grew up in their town. They all knew him. They all knew his mother, his father. They all knew his brothers and his sisters. They, they just recognised him and they were keen to hear him. It says in Luke 4 and 22, all spoke well of him. And again, that uses that word. They were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips, full of grace. He preached full of grace. That word is used uh, quite a few times. But keep reading, because it goes on to say in Luke 4 and 28, six verses later, all of the people, so it's the same people, all of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. So what a sermon. He starts off and they all think he's wonderful. He's so wonderful. His words are so gracious. They end up being furious with everything that he's saying to the extent they want to drag him outside and put him to death really or get rid of him, stone him, throw him over a hill or whatever. Isn't it interesting how people can change their minds very quickly? You could be the favoured one one week and the hated one the next week. Mm. When you preach, I think you want the, the, the congregation, the audience, your listeners, you want them to love you or hate you. You say, hang on, Phil, you want them all to love you. Oh, no, 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 you don't. You want them all to, if they sit there indifferent, everybody, I would have think you've technically failed in what you've sought to do, really. I mean, if everyone, sometimes if you bring a very strong word, which Jesus did, if you read what he preached to them, he just laid it on them really thick. No wonder they hated him. He said, Jubilee has come. It's time to release all your slaves. All, pay back everything that you owe. To pay, just give it all back to them. They don't owe you any. Of course, they were angry at the very thought of idea of that. So, yeah, you want people to love you or hate you. Okay, But it's not you. It's the words that you bring to people. I think to get no reaction is quite disappointing. really is. Um, I've spoken much of preparing over the last few weeks. Uh, now I want to speak about the delivery. Poor delivery can take so much away from the message. So we, at least in all that we do for Christ, we do our best. Some people say we should strive to be perfect. I, I wouldn't adhere to that one really, but we do our best. We, we work as hard as we possibly can at what we've been given to do, that our master would be pleased with the efforts that we've done. We do our best, but of course, what we cover more than anything else is not our skill or our ability or all our hard work, all our research, all, all the things that we've done. We seek the anointing of God. We're fully conscious that when we've done our best, it's not good enough no matter how good it is, and what we need is the anointing of the Spirit of God to come upon us, which makes all the difference. Often the anointing can make up for all the, the, the slips that we make, the things that we get wrong, because in the end, it's the anointing that captures people, that draws them in, it's that which they hear. So we must always covet the anointing of God.
I want to give some thought then first to how when we stand to, to address or, or to give a talk, uh, how those first few minutes can be really important. Probably all people are a little bit nervous, a little bit anxious. Um, the more you do it, the more you do anything, you become more confident and more settled and it isn't such a, an ordeal. If you don't do it too often, it becomes this very, very you know, nervous. And some of it is because the adrenaline that's running through your body, that's, that's making it even worse. That's uh, pumping you up as it were. But it's best if we can give, when we give a talk, we don't stumble into it. Now, be assured that generally everyone who's listening to you is for you. They're not against you unless you've preached some really stingers before. <laughs> they just, they just, just come to throw some bricks at you. But generally speaking, uh, within a church setting, the congregation are for you. If you're preaching to the unconverted, well, usually no one's very much for you and they're either ignoring you completely or getting very angry with what you're saying. Most non-Christians just aren't there. They're just not interested, you know. Some uh, look angry and they might say something. So best not to stumble into what you're going to say, but to give some thought to those few minutes where you're going to start. How might you start then? Well, you could start with a rhetorical question. Have you ever considered, and then you could say something like that. Uh, you, it doesn't have to be a long, big thing. It, what it does, it just settles you. It settles everyone and you're confident at the start. Have you ever considered? You could elicit audience participation. I don't generally do that. I just want you to sit down and behave yourselves and listen to me, okay? But you could, you could say something like, um, uh, will you indicate by showing, uh, you know, raising your hand uh, about something, you know, how many of you have, have done this or thought of this? So, so you end up drawing the people in and, uh, you know, elicit participation. State a simple fact, maybe, is another way. Uh, make a quote. So you, you, you plant something out there. Um, you could say something like, uh, a new survey has ju just been conducted that has discovered that so many adults, and whatever it is. So you could just state something, make a, a statement. Create a scenario. Start with telling a little story that you've prepared in your own mind. A few years ago when I went on a skiing trip, well, I've never been on a skiing trip in my life, but it doesn't matter. You just create a scenario <laughs> and then... <laughs> no, you're not starting with telling lies. It's just a story, for heaven's sake. I mean, Jesus was never a farmer. Okay, so, so, so you just create a scenario because you have the story in your mind. It might be a true story for you. It's always best to stick to your true stories, then you won't forget it, okay? Um, but, but, but start with a scenario and then you've got the people there, they're all listening to you and you've got them in a place. They're not sort of, you know, all over the place or sitting there nervously worrying about you. Um, you could make a startling statement and that gets people's attention. Uh, we had, an, my wife and I had an old minister once, he would say things just to startle us, just to get our attention as much as to think, oh, I don't agree with that, or is that true, you know? Um, Jesus was good at this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Really? Really? How is that possible? The meek won't. It's the strong and the powerful that we will inherit. Of course, he starts off with his statement, which 
startles, and then he starts to unfold what it is through the Sermon on the Mount, of course. Should you start with a joke? Mm, now, there are some people who are very jokey. They need to be very careful. Okay, if they think up jokes, they'll do too many. For certain, a joke will, will alienate some of the audience from you because they've come not to a musical. <laughs> I know, you know, they've come to hear something serious, something spiritual, holy, dynamic from the Word of God. So, so be very careful. Uh, some people who tell jokes all the time, you can get away with it, okay, but be careful if you are a joker, you'll end up overdoing it and you will alienate people from you. And, and just to be jolly all the time isn't a, isn't a positive thing. Uh, people don't always like it. They like a little bit of it, but they don't want too much of it. I think maybe in the two years of a rise, I might have told four jokes in that period of time, something like that, not many. Uh, I'm not a joker, you see, so I don't go there. I don't even think that way. If a joke happens with me, it's an accident. Uh, it was never planned and designed. It was just, it was just an accident. And then I'm very proud of myself that um, I've, I've cracked a joke. Um, so all of these will give you a moment, as it were, to settle yourself and to settle the audience. And you, you can then lead in to the whole thing comfortably. Now, before you speak, um, I've learned through experience there are certain things that you have to have that need to be in order. Otherwise, if they're not, you'll be struggling all through. What if there was no lectern uh, and you've come with notes? How do, you, how do you master that? You know, you just stand there at the front and it's all clumsy, isn't it? It's so clumsy to do this. So you have to make sure there is a lectern. I've gone to places and I've made one. Uh, I'm talking about places like Africa where there wasn't one. I just I saw some old boxes outside, so I went and brought them in and I piled them up, and there was my lectern. So because I ha I I have to be comfortable to do this. If I'm worrying about all the time what's what's not right, I it takes up brain power, doesn't it, to just overcome that thing. So yeah, is there a lectern? Is it high enough? I've gone to some churches where it's sort of down here. And then I'm, I'm, it's, it only takes six inches away from here, and you're struggling. You really are struggling. You're thinking, this doesn't feel right, and you're, you're fussing with it all the time, and it's hard to settle down. Uh, I've been to some places in the world where it's extremely hot. Well, it's extremely hot here today, but um, because it's extremely hot, and of course what they do in these countries, they have fans all the time. Well, you know what happens when the fans are going and you put your notes down. They, they fly all over the room, you know. And um, I, I remember once going to Sri Lanka and we ended up in the evening and we were, I was preaching on a roof. I don't know if Daphne will remember this. I was preaching on a roof and, uh, and they had the fans going and it was so hot. 
because uh, there was the noise of all the traffic, so that was another problem as well, being heard. But these were flying about all over the place. They really were, and it was a pain. So, of course, what you, what you need, or of course what you remember, it doesn't happen so much in this country. You take weights with you, things that you can weigh the paper down with, all gained through experience. So all, and the way I'm telling you, it was all painful experience, wasn't it? So, um, yes. Sometimes the sun can be so bright, that's a, that's a difficult thing as well to speak. Either you can't see the people or it's just so bright, you know, even seeing your paper clearly is not a good thing. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, I've been in some places where the light is so poor you can't read your notes. It's just whether it was partial blackout or whatever it is. See, all of these things, they're a problem. Uh, it's more of a problem if you travel abroad with all these uh, different things in this country, but you can have your problems in this country. So what I would do if I was going to a church that I wasn't used to, I would just have a look around, make sure everything's fine. If it was lower, I'd say, well, I can put that on there and put that on there and maybe another book and I can see what I'm doing, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that, that's, that's important to us. Begin the presentation that you want to make in what I call the ready position. Okay, so your feet are important in preaching. Some people, they do some funny things. They stand like this or something with their legs crossed. Well, you're likely to fall over, possibly, okay. <laughs> or some people even stand on their foot. Or they do, they do just, just stand normal. Just be, you know, think about these things your eyes. You have to keep looking around all the time. Eye contact is so vital and so important. Um, it's both important for the person who's listening and for the person who's speaking. Now, I appreciate some people, they can't make eye contact. Even in a one-to-one -one conversation, they can't. You perhaps know some people, they just, they just look everywhere apart from in your eyes. Now, you don't have to surmise why that is. It could be for a whole number of reasons. Uh, but then in the congregation, there are some people who will never look at you. And of course, what happens then, you start to think about them. I'm always amazed how the brain can look at this, look at you, think about everything else, think about God, hear the Holy Spirit, and you still have time to think about all these other people that are all doing strange things. Uh, what can the brain handle? It's amazing, isn't it? And yet, see, all of these things can be a little bit distracting. Why is that person looking so angry? Why does that person never look at me? That person with the phone, are they playing a game? Or are they reading the Bible? What are they doing on the phone? You, that goes on all the time. So if you're in a congregation, do think of the poor preacher. Okay, good to keep general eye contact on him, keep an eye on him, keep looking at him, keep... Uh, because... You're, you draw from the speaker. You draw from. If you all weren't interested looking somewhere else, doing something else, I would dry up. It's, I would, because I'm thinking, no one's listening to me. Lord, no one's listening to me. You know, I need to do something, uh, make them all listen. Uh, but there we go. So, so yeah. Um, avoid awkward body movements. Some people do have tics, don't they? You know, in their face. Like, I've known a few people preach with tics and they can, it's a shame. They can't help it, but it's a distraction. Maybe for them, maybe not. Maybe they got used to it. But for the people listening, it is because what we've got is a two-way thing going on here. 
your listening and your attentiveness is as important as my delivery and, and so the whole thing it flows together nervous gestures okay just uh, just i mean just 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 don't need to do this and repetitive repetitive actions um i have a repetitive action have you noticed what it is you've been watching me for a long time you definitely noticed it you saw it yeah yeah it's this you notice that i've got to stop that now you think well how do i stop that because i don't i don't think to do it i've got to do something else with my hands so you get this okay or you could do something like put an elastic band quite firmly around two fingers so it hurts <laughs> hurts a little bit so you're consciously thinking this is to stop me doing that doing that <laughs> doing that okay I, lo I looked at one message that i was delivering here and i think within the first 10 minutes i did it 20 times now it's only slight and it, it's not it's not too bad but it's enough uh, it's enough to put some people off because once you see it you're fixated on this you think he's done it again done it again done it again and then you come the next time and you count how many times he does it you know and uh, like uh, so anything that is a distraction is a distraction and so uh, so it would be wise if you saw it to say to the preacher it would be good if you didn't do that he might not even know, she might even know they didn't. He said, oh, I couldn't do that. Well, it's more gracious if you do. See, I was putting up with it because no one mentioned it until my dear wife said the other week you're doing it and then I think I need to do something about it, okay. Uh, but there we go, okay. So, yeah, these, all of these things, very practical how-tos. And they, um, I've said before, don't put your hands in your pockets because um, it, it, takes, it takes away the impact of the message. It, it, I'm not just chatting with you like, about football or anything. This is, this is serious stuff we're talking about and it needs to be taken seriously. So uh, this, uh, uh, don't, put your, don't put your arms behind your back. It looks weird, doesn't it? You know, just me doing this now. It's like, what am I, what am I portraying? I need to use these to talk with like we would normally in life. I need to use them, so, so don't do that. Uh, don't hide behind the lectern okay like terrified okay not and move and don't grab it okay as though you're panic stricken okay i mean i mean continually do that sort of thing i think if you can move out i think that's absolutely fine and you know uh yeah just just bring a bit of different thing in people don't mind if you stay put and um that's fine but uh, but don't be rigid or fixed or set in that way you must vary your voice uh, patterns and the volume of your voice, uh, highs and lows, times to, you know, be, be more forceful and times to just sort of gently say what you want to say, vary the tone, uh, pace, pace your presentation, the speed of it. As it gets exciting, you move along quickly and as you're seriously, you can move along a little bit slower and so that people are just not hypnotised as it were by a monotonous tone all the time. You will put people to sleep if your tone is monotonous with all the best concentration in the world. Now the Holy Spirit, I know we want his anointing, but let's help him, yes? Uh, as, uh, let's help ourselves in the whole process. 
Use the stress and the pitch of your voice to convey meaning, fear, tension, joy. Use these within your voice to convey the thoughts you're putting across. Use power pauses as impact to give an audience time to think. If you think, oh, this is, this, you, in your study you see, you like, this is brilliant. This is, this is just brilliant. When you've said it, just stop a minute and let it sink in. Then you could even say, I'll just say that again. And they get the idea that we're pausing over this particular part. It's important. It also gives you time to collect your thoughts. Politicians do this all the time, don't they? They sort of speak and it's like they've slowed down. And they go, uh, 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 and they're thinking, thinking. They've been trained, as it were, to carefully speak slowly so they can think through the next thing that's coming out. I'm sure, anyway. Uh, if anyone's daydreaming and you just stop, it wakes them up. It's amazing. People think, oh, what's he stopped for? You know, and you've got them again. They're back with you now. Had a little dreaming pause there. Um, uh, and you can always do it to underscore the importance of a point. That's it. Just stop there. And they go, because mm, they're thinking. They don't necessarily want you to go on to the next point. And sometimes when you preach and drop a good point and you carry on, they're not listening to you. They're still thinking about this point that you've made. And they go, and so you could even slow down and let them do that. Engage your audience with an ongoing eye contact all of the time. Moving around the hall all the time, picking everybody up. Uh, you might look at someone 20 times, like I said the other week. They're convinced you stared at them the whole night. Uh, but you just have to make contact those uh, few times. Um, use your eyes as you would in a conversation. So when you're talking to someone, you don't look at them all the time and just look in their face all the time. That's, that would make you feel really uncomfortable with them. So you look down or you look and then you come back and look. And that's how it is with a sermon. It's as though I've spoken to this person for half an hour and even in the natural, if it was the two of you, you wouldn't be staring at each other all the time. But you would have said, no, we were talking to each other and it was an intimate thing. And so that can happen within the sermon context. Uh, perform the same gesture. See, I just did that. Just did that then. Okay. Perform the same gestures you would when chatting to someone. So you're either a, a person that uses a lot of this, and that's fine if that's the way you are, or you, but to never use your hands is, is a bit awkward because standing up here you want to do something with your hands. You have to do something with them. And so just use them if you use them a little bit. Just use them as you would with chatting. Make contact with everyone who's here. Uh, the safest place in a packed auditorium is the front row. I've always thought that funny because uh, in lots of uh, state-type churches, people sit at the back. But if you want to go undiscovered, sit at the front. The preacher doesn't look at the front people. They get overlooked. Uh, I don't know why that is. You end up looking at people to the middle and the back more, and the front ones escape. But So all the people who rush to the back and sit at the back, they're going to get more contact all the way through anyway. 
Um, I've been in churches where I've forgotten there was a balcony and uh, only at the end of the meeting I realised I totally ignored everyone that was in the balcony or on another level, you know, where you just need to, because you don't normally do, you just, you just look here, but you have to do this as well. And then, you know, so your circuit is a much bigger circuit. Okay, <laughs> okay, here, here. Um, if you're on a platform and there's others behind you, good to turn around now and again, include them. They might have dropped off, you know what I mean? You've got to just... <laughs> Pull them back in, although, you know, you know everything. I know you know everything, but listen to me anyway. So there's, there's the idea of, of, of the inclusive thing. Uh, people usually, in church, you should have people sitting in a semicircle. We really should break this rose thing because it just, it undermines, uh, well, it undermines family. It undermines relationship. Uh, I don't go there to have relationship with the back of someone's head. So if we could put something of a, a half circle of moon, and unless, unless you can see some people, you know, not just the preacher, you can see some of the others of the congregation, and it, it becomes an inclusive thing. And then to, to talk to everyone, it's just a question of this. It's the rotating of the head, not, you know, all over the place like this. So that's it. Um, and I think it's important the audience can see one another. I do, I think churches need to arrange themselves that they can see each other. Smile when you speak. Um, don't look serious or uptight or annoyed. Well, at least not all the time, okay? Because uh, we know a smile pulls people in. Um, don't let your smile, though, become a grin because it's just horrible then, okay? So work on that, okay? Everything is moderation, isn't it, in this, in this business? Um, yeah, people who smile win other people over, even if it's something nasty. You can win them over with a smile. Uh, and if you're nervous when you start and you're nervous throughout, you, the congregation, will all be nervous. They will sit there nervous for you. They will pick up your nerves and they will be nervous. Well, they want you to succeed, but because you're nervous, they'll be nervous. And so the whole thing's... It's a bit too tight. Keep your words simple. Speak in terms of actions, not flowing theory. Jesus always spoke in terms of action. I've got a reference to here in Luke 18. I'll read something from 18 to 20 of Luke 18. Luke 18, 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus could have just gone right into one, couldn't he? I mean, what a question. Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, he could have theorised for an hour. He could have just said anything. Listen to what he says. He says, why do you call me good? <laughs> what a classic way to answer that boy. What a classic way. Jesus answered. He said, no one's good except God alone. He's just... He's just got this boy. Remember, it says about him, he loved him. And he's not, he's not boring him. He's not using theories. He's just being really sharp with this boy. This boy is not stupid. He's, he's come. Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. He's not going into it. The boy says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. He said, when Jesus heard this, 
He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. See, he didn't theorise. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't expect the answers. What he got was what he must do. This is what you must do. This will lead to an action. And Jesus cut through everything about him because he was a very religious person and he kept the law. I believe he did. I don't think he came and lied to Jesus. But he cut through it all and gave him something to do. In the end, most church meetings that we go away from, we should ask ourselves the question, what does the preacher ask me to do? And if it's nothing, the preacher's missed an opportunity. Because there's so much we should be doing. There's so much, it's not like you must do this. I'm not saying that. But within the message, it's like, you know, he was right. I should give myself to prayer more. He's right, you know. There is an enemy that we need to resist. He's right, you know. I should be reaching out to the poor that are amongst us. You're not, you're not saying it blatantly, but you should always leave thinking, hmm, what was God asking me to do? See, this word is so practical. It's unbelievably practical. So Jesus didn't theorise flowing theories. Long words, uh, if we use them, can confuse people and even cause resentment. If you have to use a term that you think your audience wouldn't understand, you might want to explain it. For all of you, if I use the word justification, I don't have to explain that. You all know basically what justification is. But if I was talking to new Christians or Christians, you know, or even new, fresh new converts, the word justification doesn't mean anything. They think of printing, don't they? All the, all the, that's justification for them. Well, you would have to explain justification. You might have to explain sanctification, atonement. You might even have to explain holiness. And with some words that we have in the Bible, the context of what it used could be used in various ways. So if I, I'm speaking to you about holiness, I could be speaking about holy, pure living, or I could be speaking about living a separated life. Well, you say, it's the same thing. No, no, it can be slightly different to be separated for God's use and to live a holy, pure life. You could, two, two slightly different things. Long words make you sound pretentious. Do you know what pretentious means? See, I'm doing it now. I'll explain the meaning of the word. It makes you sound as though you're important, as though you're attempting to impress someone. Don't use long words. You're not impressing anyone. That's not your job. Your job is to teach the word of God uh, and, and hopefully to the lowest common denominator without insulting the congregation or the audience you have in front of you. You'll sound phony if you use these words. You'll sound condescending. And all of them, see, distract from the message that you're trying to put across to the people. Different translations can change the whole meaning, uh, understanding of uh, a passage of scripture. It can be a positive thing or it can be a negative thing. So you have to be very careful if you're going to jump from one translation to another. Is this doing exactly what I want it to do? I take something from the message. Something from the message um, 
is very good and some things are not so good so you would need to pick and choose if you were going to use this. I'll start reading this passage and as soon as you identify it, shout out the book and the chapter it's from. The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One looked at him and people turned away. We looked down on him and thought he was scum. But in fact, is it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. Shout out, please. Isaiah, Isaiah 53. That's right, okay. We know it so well, don't we? But sometimes you go into another uh, translation of it and you go, I didn't even recognise it, you know. And some of the words he uses, scum, disfigurement, all of these things. So sometimes, because it's not familiar, it works for you. And because it's not familiar, it works against you. And you're a bit shocked by what you hear and not follow it. So uh, use all different translations, but be a bit choosy and know your audience and know if they'll appreciate this or they won't appreciate this. Uh, see, I would never use this in preaching to you because I know you're a long time, as it were, established and you're familiar with certain passages of scripture and you wouldn't appreciate that. I mean, you might read it in your own leisure at home just to read a different thing up. But all these things, uh, they, they, they can help us or they can hinder us. Uh, never, never write an address fully out. Memorise or rehearse it. Okay. Having no notes is not a good thing. It'll make you very stressful. Uh, just to stand here with absolutely nothing to fall back on, why do it? What, are you being pretentious? I mean, what is it all about, really? Uh, so, have notes. Being bound to notes, again, <laughs> makes the thing impersonal. It's like someone's just reading something to you. You don't even know if they wrote this. They might have just got it off Google or something, you know, they're just, just throwing it out there, really. So, notes can be, we need some, but don't overdo it and don't underdo it. The important thing is what you say and how you say it, it must sound credible. It must sound believable and it must sound convincing to the people who are listening to you. Just gonna finish on this, then we're gonna have our first person to speak. Have we, have we decided who's gonna be first? Oh, I think, I think it's Denise will be first. So you're, you'll be first up, Denise, okay. Just, just five stages uh, in getting to know your sermon because uh, having been asked to speak, this, this message that you're going to give becomes your friend. It becomes something that's special and precious to you until you deliver it. And once you've delivered it, it's fine. You can go, oh, I've delivered the message now. What I found painful is if you're in churches where they have multiple services, and you're expected to give the same message two or three times, 
I found it a little bit difficult because I brought the message that I've held and treasured in my heart. I've, I've delivered it only to find I've got to deliver it again and then deliver it again. Now, sometimes the first delivery is the best delivery. Sometimes the second or third delivery is the best delivery than the other two. Then you just go home frustrated. You've lost, haven't you? Because you got it wrong once. You might have got it right once, but you don't concentrate on the time you got it really right. You look at the time when you didn't quite do it the same the other time. So that's, that's a little, but that's, I mean, we're not going to complain about lots of people coming to church, so you've got to preach the same message two or three times. But maybe you've just had more preachers. I'm not sure I'd call you should just preach the same message three or four times, but have different preachers preaching that same message in a different way. So with the message, getting it to be part of you, uh, just listen to others maybe preaching that same similar message. Read books and magazines pertaining to that message that you're supposed to give. Study and research carefully what it is you want to say. Uh, commit certain stories or verses of scripture to memory from that. And then if you can prepare it well in advance, you can meditate on it for some time. And it's almost like it, it just turns over inside of you. And then it's like you've, you've prepared this very special, precious thing, and now you put it out there, give it to the people. So now Denise is going to do that and present something very special and precious to us. So Denise, come. and um... So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just be with me as I speak tonight. And um, Lord, may I say the things that you want me to say and may I not say the things that you don't want me to say. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, um, I think we were told to think of a, a word and ask God to drop a word into our spirits and um, I did that and the word I got was pattern and the first thing I thought was oh no how am I going to speak about pattern in five minutes and I was immediately reminded of a program that I really love on TV called The Great British Sewing Bee. I don't know if you've ever watched it but um, each week a group of really good sewers get given a pattern and instructions to follow and as you watch it you find out that people are not very good at um, following instructions and therefore they're not very good at following the pattern and you watch them and they get themselves in a pickle um, because they just do not read things properly or do not take in what it is they're being asked to do and it reminded me of a story um, that's in the Bible and it is about pattern and instructions and um, you'll probably remember this because it, it was something we studied in our first very first week of Arise and it's a story in Exodus where Moses has brought the people through the wilderness. Um, they're in Mount Sinai now and God has asked Moses to go up to the top of the mountain because he wants to give some instructions to his people. He's wanting to make a covenant with them. He wants to show them the right way to live and Moses goes up he gets the commandments and he comes down and um, the people seem on board with everything it, it all seems to be going quite well and then um, God um, says to Moses it's in Exodus 25 he says I want you to get the people to give me an offering he gives them a very specific list of all the things he wants to be gathered and it's things like 
precious, uh, st precious stones like jewels. There's wood and there's skins and there's fabrics and gold and silver, etc. And the people seem to be okay about that. They gather all the, the, the things together. And we see here that God is in the detail. Um, and there's a reason for that, which I'll tell you in a moment, but he's in the detail of everything. They're all specific items. Moses goes up the mountain again to get the blueprint, the pattern for this tabernacle that God wants built. And a tabernacle is a holy place, a shelter where God's presence can be. So he wants to build this so he can be with his people and his people can be with him. And uh, Moses goes up and he gets the, pa he gets the pattern and um, he's coming down. We're told his face is radiant. He's been in close communion with God he comes down, he has the pattern, and as he gets to the bottom of the mountain, um, he can hear something. And you might remember the story. He, I mean, could you imagine that he's been with God, he comes down, he's feeling radiant, he's probably quite excited, and he hears the sound of singing, and he thinks, what is going on here? And as he gets closer, he sees a golden statue probably shining in the sun, and there are the people breaking the first two commandments that they've only just agreed to. Um, so Moses uh, smashes the um, smashes the, the, the uh, stone tablets with the instructions on, and then we see that Moses, despite he must have had such a heavy heart, mustn't he? But he, he then goes, and he has to go and intercede with God for these people. Um, God is so angry, so hurt and disappointed because he's been already through so many ups and downs with these people. And Moses says, like, don't wipe them out. What will be said of you if you, um, you've brought them through um, out of slavery, you've brought them through the wilderness, and what will be said of you if you just wipe these people? These are going to be your holy nation, your people. And so God relents. And then we see something. God actually makes a statement. Um, he says, and this is in um, 34.6, he says that I... I'm a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he says that he does forgive sin and wickedness, but he also says that, you know, that he has to punish. So there's consequences uh, for these people. The people are showing a pattern of behaviour that's not good. It's like they've got no con sort of control they're unfaithful, they don't seem to have any commitment, they go straight back to idol worship. But God shows a pattern of mercy. He shows that he's faithful, he shows that he's gracious, and he shows that he's good. Now after this, um, the tabernacle gets built. And it says in Hebrews 8, 5, um, it tells us that these people are going to serve a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow and a pattern of what is in heaven. And that's why um, God warned Moses on the, on the mountain, make sure, see to it, that you build everything exactly to the pattern that I've showed you. And that's because every single thing was symbolic. Everything had significance. There was nothing left to chance. There was, there was nothing that God hadn't already thought of because this was something that he wanted for his people so that they could they could be his people, his holy nation, and, they, and he could be their God. Um, I was just thinking about 
pattern and how you know we do fall into these patterns of behavior if we're not careful that's why we need to have the relationship with God and Paul talks about this in Romans 12 too he says do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but instead be transformed to the uh, renewing of your mind and in the message version it actually tells you that God just wants you to surrender he says give me your everyday life Give me your sleeping, your eating, your working. Whatever you do, give it to me as an offering. Embrace what I have for you. So God just wants us, doesn't he? He wants a relationship with us, wants to dwell amongst us. He knows that we struggle. He knows that we need help. He wants us to live under his blessing. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. Paul writes when he does things wrong, that I do what I do not want to do. And then he says, who will save me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ. So today we don't have the tabernacle or the practices that were, happened then. There's no need for the sacrificial blood because we know that when Jesus died on the cross, he was that complete sacrifice for all time. Luke 23, 45 gives us an account. It says, the sun stopped shining and the temple curtain was torn in two. If you ever read through the Exodus account, you'll see pages and pages of detail of every single thing that was made to put in the tabernacle. And you might remember from our previous teaching that we learned about the curtain and how thick it was but it was torn in two, just as though it was a piece of paper, as though it was a contract being torn up, because now Jesus had made a way. It was a new covenant. Um, and just to leave you with, actually, I just want to uh, leave you with something to say, you know, this week, can, could you sort of think about any patterns that you may have in your own life? Sometimes they're so subtle, aren't they? We don't notice them. Um, and, but we know God sees everything. He, he knows what we watch. He knows where we go. He knows what we do at work. He knows what's in our bank account. He knows what we do on our computer. Are there any patterns that we've formed that we might need to bring to God and ask for his help? Um, and um, when we do ask for help, what sort of help can we expect to receive? Well, in Psalm 25a, it says the Lord is good and he does what is right. It says that he leads the humble in doing right and teaches them his way. And our part is the same as it's always been. We just have to surrender to God. We need to live our lives worthy of his calling. And we have to remember we could start with the first two commandments, love the Lord our God with everything, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, and give him the highest place. And that, I think, if we could get those two right, would be a really good place to start. Amen. Wonderful. Okay, we've got one more before we uh, finish this course. That's Anne's going to come a little bit later. I'm just going to finish this last one um, on something that's very, very practical. And uh, it's, it's this, uh, it's the whole thing about notes and having notes. We, uh, Edward just mentioned it there. Um, I think some people think it's better if you don't have notes. I'm not absolutely sure about that. Even if I know it very clearly, I'm still going to have them. Um, 
because uh, I think in some ways it helps the listeners as well. It keeps me on track and it keeps me to the time. Uh, without notes, I could wander anywhere and then say everything and then say nothing. And then the valuable things that perhaps the Holy Spirit spoke to me about in my study time, they've gone from me. And so I don't think it's a negative thing. I think it's a very positive thing to help keep you on track, to, uh, to say what needs to be said and to flow the whole thing along. What sort of notes should you have? How should you have notes? Um, well, a good thing sometimes to have, and then you never lose them, is something like a, a book about this size where you can write your sermon in it and it's kept, it's not, it's not lost then, it's there and you can record when, when you spoke it and, and where, so forth. Some people have what they call a, a wide margin Bible where down the, the edge here and here, it's blank. Um, and you write your sermon notes there. Now the only trouble is you've got to have real good eyesight because there's not a lot of space and you have to write really small and it's on very, very thin paper. It's never anything I've done. I've seen others do it. I don't suppose it's very popular. Uh, you could have notes in your Bible. Uh, when I first started in ministry, we never had a lectern at all. And so you'd stand preaching with this in front of you. And so I used to write my notes on very thin, narrow pieces of paper. I just put them in my Bible so I would have it in front of me. But I definitely had notes. Uh, I'm finding now the older I get, my notes get a bit longer. Uh, maybe that's something to do with my brain power, I'm not absolutely certain. But I could just have a few lines and then speak about that and somehow you could retain more things. I don't know if that's true. Um, I've said about no notes at all. Uh, I've, my preference now is to do it on A4 paper and just to keep them and to file them away. Uh, I think I'll keep them because I might use them again, but I never find that I do very often because if you're always talking to the same people, you can't just give them an old meal heated up, can you? You've got to give them something fresh and new and different. And, uh, but, but if you're moving around and you're preaching in different places, sometimes God will give you a real message that you can preach in several places. And then as you preach it two and three and four times, it actually becomes sharper and better because you seek to improve it. You try something and you go, oh, that didn't quite work that, so I'll do something a little bit better. So uh, A4, um, I, I would always have them. I think it just helps the sermon to flow, uh, keeps the preacher from rambling and brings all those thoughts. Um, when you have notes, you're not necessarily bound into them. And often as you're preaching, it's then the Holy Spirit just drops something fresh that he wants you to say at that particular moment because there's somebody there that needs to hear something specific so there's always an openness and I found the bits that I say that are not here are the bits that always get me into trouble because uh, you either excite people or you make them angry one of the two and so it doesn't seem that the Holy Spirit's too worried about making people angry or upset uh, if he wants to get a point across what not to do with sermon notes, a word of warning here. Um, we, we've said a lot about writing your sermon out in full, word for word, and just um, reading it, as it were. That's, that's not always a good thing. Uh, well, in fact, it's very rarely a good thing. I'm not going to say any more about that. If you have notes like this, don't write on both sides of the paper. 
you will get into a real mess and sometimes it's impossible to sort it out. So just write on one side of the sheet and just do this very carefully. When you slip the bit of paper underneath, don't make a big show of it because it looks very sloppy, you know, doing this. Just, just very gently and carefully, just slip it underneath because don't be too uh, overdoing it with that. Uh, you will, if you write your notes early, and you're just musing about it as you go through the week or the day, you'll have other thoughts. So, because when you look at your notes again, you go, hmm, I just jot this bit in. And because by the time the end of the week comes and you've got to prepare, you've got to give the message, you've got so many scribble bits on the top, you can't make out the scribble bits from the sermon. And then you might think, I need to write the whole thing out again, you know. So if you do write notes, write them very carefully and neatly so it doesn't get a big mess in front of you because you'll get, just get lost in your own mess. Um, helpful hints regarding sermon notes. Um, colour. I use colour all the time. Um, very colourful, my notes are. Uh, and the colour code means something to me, so you develop your own code. I have four colours. Uh, the, 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 the most important head bits are in red. Uh, this is usually yellow is the start of a thought and the purple is the input, the, the orange, sorry, is the important part in the thought. And so it's just a line and it's not in too much detail, otherwise you're bound to keep reading things. So just the thought, the idea, and then you can start uh, to flow with it. So adopt your own uh, method, your own key to how you would do things. Uh, make the notes as brief as possible without forgetting completely what it is your thought was. So brief you forgot what the thought was, that's no good. Um, and write it so you can read it comfortably. Because you just want to look like this, down quick and then up. So you get it and you see it. If there's an important word in a line, in a sentence, I'll always circle that. So I just look at the word and then I know exactly what that is. I don't have to read the whole thing. I can just uh, work with that. So you highlight the key words. Um, when you're finished, store them away. Like I said, you might never use them again. Or sometimes when you're preparing another message that's you're thinking, oh, I remember speaking about something. You can dig it out and see what God gave you then and you can use that material again. Uh, write where and when you preached it, especially if you go and visit other churches. We had a visitor in our church. Um, and he would come every six months, maybe once in a year or something like that. And for about four times on his visits, he preached the same sermon every time. And <laughs> my wife definitely said to me, has he done it again? And I said, yep, he's done it again. He's preached on the function of the body of Christ. And in year three, years four, she said, he's done it again. I said, yeah, I know, he's done it again. So anyway, he obviously loved that sermon. And, uh, but we got it at least four times. And uh, maybe lots of the congregation didn't remember, but of course, those that really want to remember, they can remember. Um, last little thing I want to say about is getting free from fear. Uh, I mean, I've been doing this many times, and yet the enemy always comes always comes, never fails with fear. And it can come any time. It can come while you're preparing it. It can come when you've got it all sorted and you're happy with it. And then he comes and he just, he just comes and says something to me. It's rubbish. 
that's wrong or just something just enough to strike a little bit of fear well in the end he's overplayed his card really so i just i might even say out there shut up and then definitely says you're talking to me i go no 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 <laughs> this is, no no not you dear uh, but here you go um so be prepared for fear even uh, you know as you come to to the meeting where you are it could strike you there or as you get up to stand it could strike you there so He's doing, he's doing what he always does. He comes with fear. Um, remind yourself, regarding a sermon, um, that you're going to enjoy yourself. You're going to enjoy yourself. This is fun. I'm going to enjoy this. No one sermon is crucial. Even if you made a complete mess of it, it's all right. People aren't hanging on your every word. They're not going to go out and do anything ridiculous because you've, you've preached a bad one. Nothing catastrophic will happen. It must not set unfair standards on yourself. I have to be good. No, just be yourself. Do the work and then come with the message that God has given you. Most the people who are listening to you love you and they will forget most of what you say by next week or even tomorrow or even tonight drinking their cocoa don't worry about it it isn't that important and vital you're still worrying about it and they have completely forgotten what you were talking about or even who spoke okay um, and they're very forgiving anyway most Christians are very forgiving if you've made a real hash of something failure is not a disgrace we will fail in our lives at many things, many times, but the thing is to pick yourself up and to keep going. Um, people are not hanging on your every word, but I like to preach as though they were. I like to think if you don't hear this, you're lost. You're going to miss out on so much. The kingdom of God is going to pass you by. That's the urgency with me because I know truly that it's not that urgent and important. If you missed it this time, God will get you next time around and he'll just impress it on you a little bit further. I've lived through failures in my life and generally when we do, we look back and laugh about them. I mean, there are some things we don't laugh about, but lots and lots of things that we got wrong, we think we just... How stupid, you know, or things like that. As a preacher, I have to do this, whatever. I can't stop myself. And uh, you're just impelled to do it. And if it goes wrong, you're still impelled to do it again and again and again. Good sermons, remember this, are sermons that do good. You'd be surprised. You might come away and thinking, oh, made a real hash of that but what it's done in some people's lives it's turned them around I've had people come to me 25 years after I preached and they said we remember what you said that day. I'm thinking you do I mean I'm amazed it's like because it's not you you see it's the Holy Spirit is just channeled through you they might not have told you anything at the time or they've written to me and said what you did that day what you said has changed the whole course of my life and you think oh did it you know and it, because it does we don't know what goes on so good sermons are sermons that do good I should put aside dreams of greatness if God, if God wants to use you powerfully, that's up to God. 
but don't dream of greatness. Don't dream of being, uh, I mean, as a young man, I dreamt of being the greatest, of course. There's no virtue in that. That's not God's way of doing things. Most of the preachers in the New Testament, we build them up. You know, we build Paul up to be something else. But really, he was just, he, he knew a fantastic amount, and God had showed him tremendous revelation. But we get the impression that he wasn't impressive as a person. He wasn't impressive with the language. He wasn't a great orator like the others. He just, he simply knew the truth and, and, and preached it in the way that he did. So it's not about greatness. And uh, Jesus was not a performer. He was a participant in humanity. And that's what we are. We just participate. And uh, we're not grand or special or different or we're just ordinary people and God has chosen to speak through us because we've made ourselves available to him. That's it. That's all I've got to say. So now it's Anne. I'm pleased to invite you. Anne, you're going to come and share your message. Thank you, Phil. Hello everybody. Um, when I was an adolescent, yes I was once, I was very, very keen on the love is little characters. And I saw a couple of nods there. So for the benefit of those that haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, which would be a good start, it's two little characters. One's a little boy and one's a little girl. And there's the words love is above the little characters. And underneath their characters is a little message. Now, in 1992, this Love Is characters became worldwide for one saying, which, was, which is, love is being able to say you're sorry. And it went round the world, and for years, it was a very, very big thing for the person. She made millions from it. And that was in 1972. So that fixes us with the dates. The reason I liked it is because um, I guess as an adolescent, I wanted to know what love was or what love is. And this was a good way of finding out. Uh, of course, like everything else, we all grow up and, you know, some of us get married. So we fall in love with our husbands. We have children and we love our children. And some of us have pets and we love our pets. We have friends and we love our friends. And some of us love chocolate. So there's love in so many different forms. Um, but the, the love that I'm going to be talking about tonight is the true love. Love is a much used word. And I've just said that in, in different forms for different occasions. And I would suggest the greatest gift a parent can give a child is love. Um, but sadly, all too often in this world, we hear of children being neglected, abused, even being killed, and, and some of them even at the hands of family. Um, so this really gives us a, 
a bit of a strange view on love. It, it devalues it, it dilutes it, and it gives a different interpretation to what love actually is. If we look at the King James Bible, you will find the word love 311 times. Now, I had to Google that. I didn't read it. 311 times, and a third is found in Song of Songs, Psalms, 1 John, and John's Gospel. So in those four books alone, you'll find a third of the Bible's words in love. So that's, that was quite amazing. I'm going to read a few verses which you're all so familiar with, but stay with me because you're going to say, oh, we've heard this so many times. And I am going to be reading from the New Century Version, which may or may not be familiar to some of you. And I've deliberately picked it for the reason of the wording. So this is 1 Corinthians, verse, sorry, chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. And it's not proud. Love is not rude. It is not selfish and does not get upset with others. Love does not count up wrongs that have been done. Love takes no pleasure in evil but rejoices over the truth. Love patiently accepts all things. It always trusts, always hopes, always endures. Love never fails. Well, the reason this is so familiar to most of you is because it's very prevalent in weddings. Um, both Christian and non-Christian weddings because love's a nice thing to talk about at weddings. But from a Christian viewpoint, I think we need to look at it differently. Um, the teacher of fellow said, never take things out of context. If you look at these verses just alone, we're not understanding exactly what Paul is saying in those so I want you to think of those verses that I've just read to you as the filling in a sandwich, okay? So above the filling, Paul talks in the same, in the same chapter about the Spirit giving us gifts. And he says also, if you haven't got love, what are those gifts? They're worthless, they're not worth anything. And then below the filling, Paul sums it up by saying the words about faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, just thinking about him saying that, Paul is making quite a bold statement there because he's saying love is higher than faith. Hmm, okay. If anybody has any doubt about that, we need to look at Mark 12, verses 28 to 31. And I'm just going to read this to you. And now I'm reading in the message. One of the religious scholars came up to Jesus, hearing the lively exchange of questions and answers, and seeing how sharp Jesus was with his answers, he put this question to him. Which is most important of all the commandments. Jesus said straight away, the Lord your God is one. So love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence 
and energy. And here is the second. Love others as well as you love yourself. There is no other commandment that ranks with these. So if Jesus himself is saying this, then Paul, when he said, love is first, he goes even further because he mentions in Timothy, 1 Timothy, because he's writing to Timothy. And Timothy is a different individual completely to that of Paul. And he's making it quite clear at the start of his letter exactly what he's talking about. And 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 only says this, and I'm going back um, to the, the same Bible. The purpose of this command is for people to have love. A love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a true faith. So, if he said that, and we believe that that's the truth, and we know that Jesus is love. The verses that I read to you that you've all said, well, we hear them all the time at weddings. It's very nice, but, you know, we've heard it so many times. I'm going to read them to you again now because Jesus is love. So I'm going to take love out of those four verses and I'm going to put Jesus in place. And by the end of it, I hope that you'll go away thinking differently about these four verses. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not jealous. He does not brag and he is not proud. Jesus is not rude. He is not selfish and he does not get upset with others. Jesus does not count up wrongs. Jesus takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices over the truth. Jesus patiently accepts. He always trusts. He always hopes. And he endures. And Jesus will never end. I said at the beginning about the, the Love Age, the 1990 message that went worldwide. But how's about us Christians getting our own lover's message around? And quite simply, love is what Jesus did. He made, he, he made the ultimate sacrifice for mankind. And this is the quote uh, that has lasted for more than 2,000 years, not 50, as in the previous one. Thank you. Okay. Um... That brings our course to the end. Well done, all of you that um, took part in that. Uh, really well done, I mean that. Um, and like uh, one of the students said, maybe we'll think about opening the course up to the students themselves becoming teachers on the course. I'm getting no shaking of heads or people <laughs> sinking into their chairs. So, yeah, because we want to develop preachers in this course. That's one of our fundamentals. If it's just listening to a talking head every week, that's not what we want. We want to, at the end of 
However long the, the, the school runs, we want to develop preachers and teachers of the Word of God. So um, be careful, okay? Uh, so that brings uh, this uh, year to a close. Uh, it's around about the 13th of September we're planning on opening. So you've got a nice long break through the summer. Um, hopefully you'll all be back, whether online or in the classroom, uh, for more uh, teaching around God's Word so we can understand Him more and uh, live a life that pleases Him more. Amen. God bless you all. Thank, Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed our final lesson of the year and please come back in September where we will begin Season 3 of the Arise Bible Academy. We would like to say a big thank you from all the team at Arise Ministry and if you would like to partner with the ministry, please do so by going over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation to the ministry. Also, if you would like to follow us on social media, you can do so by going to Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.